Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. Huge debt, aging population, is China past its peak? So ran a recent headline in The Australian, and usually when such headlines hit the front pages, the news is priced in. This episode, Greg and I assess the worries surrounding China's alien economy. Do Aussie investors have anything to fret about? You'll have to watch the full episode. But Greg did warn that iron ore miners could see a downgrade cycle from here, so be warned. We then discussed the overall market, pointing out that when valuation is stretched, it doesn't take much for things to snap. We ended with advice from Warren Buffett himself. The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of What's Not Priced In, Lucky 13th. Uh, we're recording this episode on Wednesday afternoon and it does seem up that the 13th episode is coinciding with the market beatdown. The Aussie market is getting absolutely smashed right now, uh, but it does serve as a nice background to today's discussion, which is all about the state of the market in general with a focus on China and the consequences of its slumping economy in particular. Now, for a few episodes, we've been saying the stock valuations are overstretched and it's certainly not as it does less uh, attractive reward given the risks entailed. And when valuations are stretched, it doesn't take much for the market to fall. And clearly, with all the bad news coming out of China, it was enough to nudge Aussie stocks lower. So, Greg, welcome. How are you feeling right now? How's the portfolio going? Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's not 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 too bad as a uh, as a value investor. You actually quite like these uh, these these sort of days where um, you know, and let's not overstate it. It's not a huge um, draw drawdown considering we've had pretty pretty strong uh, past couple of months. Uh, but as we've spoken about, the risk and reward equation hasn't been favourable for a little while now. Uh, reporting season kicked off last week, and while those reports were the ones that have been out so far broadly okay. There's just not a lot of uh, additional follow-through buying um, that you're seeing apart from the odd odd stock that, that has rallied. Uh, and then there's others that are sold off quite sharply as well. So we're not in a situation where I think there's um, you know, a particularly uh, good reason to you know, um, celebrate the results. You know, we are sort of moving from a first half of the year that was broadly strong in terms of nominal economic growth uh, and moving into a slower second half of the year. And it doesn't surprise me that the market's really struggling to get some traction on the back of um, the results that are largely in line with expectations. And while there has been some uh, good, better than expected results, there's also been some disappointment. So broadly, it's uh, it, it hasn't really done anything too uh, too well and now we're seeing um, the bad news out of China which we'll, we'll get into and that has just given uh, investors a reason to to press the sell button and especially in light of the fact that sentiment indicators were quite stretched as we pointed out last week and when you get to the point where sentiment is really stretched and the valuations are really stretched it doesn't take much in the way of bad news for the selling to, to kick back in and that's what we're seeing now. I think now we can maybe move on and discuss everything that's happening with China and any spillover effects on Australian key commodities like iron ore. Uh, obviously, China is an important trading partner and we've got plenty of big resource stocks that sort of weigh heavily on ASX 200. Yep. 
So what do you make of everything that's happening in China? What's your assessment? Yeah, look, we've spoken about this uh, in, in recent recent weeks. The, the data coming out of China um, hasn't been strong. The best thing I can say is that China will probably muddle, muddle through. Uh, I wouldn't, and I've said this before, I'm not expecting any major stimulus uh, unless things get really, really bad. Um, the overarching, uh, I guess, objective of the Chinese Communist Party is social stability. They're not looking to juice markets. They're just looking to make sure that unemployment doesn't rise uh, to such levels that it creates um, instability. So I guess there are a couple of concerns in that um, they've stopped reporting youth unemployment, which means that those numbers must be pretty pretty poor. I think the last time we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, we said they were youth unemployment rate was around 20%. Uh, so the fact that it's probably higher than that is a source of concern because when you've got idle youth on the streets, that's uh, that's sometimes not a good um, a good combination for social stability. And the fact that there's a lot of money tied up in the shadow banking system of China, and that is where you're starting to see some problems. A couple of the bigger uh, trusts and a couple of the bigger uh, uh, develop, uh, property development companies have missed payments. And when you think about a modern financial system, uh, the flow of money and payments is effectively like a pass the parcel. You know, someone gets a payment that they hand on to someone else, uh, a portion of it, and it relies on the the flow of those uh, payments to to keep the system running smoothly. And when payments are missed, uh, that creates flow on effects because obviously, uh, you know, the, the other parties to that payment can't make uh, their their payments to other counterparties, and everything starts to to sort of freeze up. And that's the the biggest risk. In saying that, uh, we've been here before with China. There's been similar episodes over the past few years of these flare-ups, uh, and they have been contained. So my sort of shorter-term view is that um, you're probably seeing a situation where most of this is now out in the open, it's in the news, and it's, and it's being priced in. Longer term, I think China continues to to have some issues. And if you look at their demographics, uh, 2022 was the first time that population didn't increase in China. And 2023, overall population, uh, I think it was fell 0.7%. So you, you, we're now at an inflection point with the, with the demographics uh, in terms of population growth. So that is a major structural challenge for China. Uh, and then um, I guess the other thing to keep in mind is that post-COVID or throughout COVID, Western developed economies printed a whole bunch of money uh, and then spent a whole bunch of money through the, the fiscal uh, channels. So you had monetary and fiscal policy working together and that created inflation and that created a, a, a boom in, in many different areas, the stock market, economic boom, all that sort of stuff. China hasn't done that. China hasn't really put in a huge amount of monetary or fiscal stimulus. So the opening up phase, yes, there was a, a rebound uh, based on the economy returning to somewhat normal activity, but it wasn't in any way juiced up via fiscal or, or monetary policy in the way that the West economies are. So it's interesting to note that because of that, China is now grappling with deflation. And I guess the, that begs the question, is that, it, is that what is in uh, the future for the Western economies if their fiscal, fiscal stimulus starts to come back down into somewhat more normal levels? And if you look at the US fiscal situation, I think we mentioned this last week, uh, they are running 
um, probably on target for about a 1.6 trillion plus deficit this year, uh, and that's to the year to September 2023. Going into the next fiscal year, year to September 24, uh, the the fiscal deficit is going to be even is projected to be larger than that as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's a, a question marks about longer term what the effect of that is going to be how much of that spending is actually productive uh how much of it actually produces economic growth uh and that's the 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 big question but uh certainly from a right here right now i think a lot of the china news is probably in the price and um a headline i just saw pop up on the australian where where i was um, preparing for this it came up on the um, the homepage of the Australian. It says huge debt, sinking housing, aging population. Is China past its peak? So, uh, in the theme of uh, in the theme of this show, I would say it's uh, it's in the headline. It's in the price. Uh, so, if we want to move on and have a quick squeeze at some of the charts that have really been exposed to this, um, we can maybe have a look and say, you know, maybe uh, maybe the worst is over for the time being. Um, yeah, okay, so we got a chart of Rio Tinto. All right, so the uh, the important thing just to point out from here from a very short-term perspective, and this uh, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, so these charts update uh, with end-of-day data. So this doesn't include today's move, which is another uh, couple of, well, maybe 1.5% lower. I think it's down early when I looked uh, to 104-something. But... As you can see here, this is a momentum indicator. This is the relative strength index, very much in the oversold region. So I wouldn't be surprised, especially considering it's at a longer term. If you look at that, it is quite long term. This support resistance line uh, has been a reasonably decent marker of where support resistance comes in. So I wouldn't be surprised to see this bounce short term. Uh, But... As you can see, these are a medium-term moving average indicators. This is 50 and 100-day moving average. And that's just started to cr- it's crossed over now, which indicates that we might be moving into a shorter-term, uh, sorry, a medium-term downtrend. Uh, if we look at BHP, and I should point out with Rio, uh, it is a, pretty much an iron ore miner. It's 83% of its underlying EBITDA uh, for the first half of this year, which is the six months to June 30, uh, 83% of that um, underlying EBITDA or underlying uh, operational earnings uh, relates to the iron ore business. The iron ore business has got a 63% return on capital employed compared to a 4% return on aluminium and 4% for copper. So really, Rio is a iron ore company with a couple of other smaller divisions uh, contributing, but when profitability falls for iron ore, uh, it has a massive impact on Rio's profitability and share price. So um, if you look at BHP, not quite as impacted purely because it's not as exposed to iron ore. BHP, uh, 58% of operational earnings uh, relates to iron ore. It's also got metallurgical coal, thermal coal, uh, copper, nickel. uh, So it is a little bit more diversified didn't state its return on capital for uh, iron ore, but it does have a 65% EBITDA margin. So very clearly these operations are very, very profitable for both BHP and uh, Rio. And for Fortescue, I'm actually a bit surprised that this share price has held up reasonably well. Uh, Fortescue has got a lower quality uh, iron ore product. So 
it's more its profitability is far more sensitive to movements in the iron ore price. Uh, but as you can see, we're approaching oversold levels here as well. All right, well, let's have a look at the uh, the chart um, on the screen here. We've shown this a few times over the past few months. It's the iron ore uh, chart overlaid with the yuan US dollar exchange rate. And as you can see down here, that uh, with the, the recent uh, bad news about China, that exchange rate has fallen to lows that are really back down to these October lows from, from last year when obviously equity markets were lower as well. But the iron ore price is still... Uh, up above 100 uh, bucks a ton. So if you think about that, you know that to me that is a, a the risk with the iron ore miners that iron ore price will continue to to fall down fall um, and and match with the yuan US dollar exchange rate. And if it was to do that, you'd be back at um, around about 80 bucks a ton, which I think is a more of a fair indication of the long term iron ore price under a an economy where China's not necessarily in major trouble, but it is muddling along. It's not growing particularly strongly, but it's not in uh, you know in sort of outright um, recession or very very low growth. And I think China's growth will trend lower over time, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be anything too drastic. Um, and if we then take a look at uh, some of the uh, the iron ore majors earnings projections and a couple of weeks ago when we did the valuation uh, segment and I discussed this market screener tool that I use and it has all the financial data from, from companies. So one thing just to point out here is that the net income, which is effectively a net profit. So for 2023, uh, it's forecast to be 10, about ten and a half billion dollars, and for twenty twenty three, they've got an end year of December, so that's uh, December this year, uh, and then next year, pro the profits forecast to increase a little bit, and then we're back to sort of falling a little bit in twenty twenty five. So I think those numbers are very optimistic, and and I, I would expect over the next whatever six to twelve months that you're going to see a downgrade cycle kick in for the iron ore miners and Rio is just a good example of um, those profit projections or profit forecasts being a bit too high and that leads into saying okay if you're just looking at basic things like PE ratio and yield then these are potentially value traps because you look at Rio and you say okay I'm buying it on you know if FY23 or 24 I'm buying it at nine times earnings Oh, we've clearly just had an update. As that's no, that's a live update and changing numbers uh, in front of us. But we're, we're looking at about nine nine times earnings. They're listening. They're listening to you, Greg. Exactly, nine times earnings uh, over over six, nearly seven percent uh, divi yield. And you think, okay, that looks great. This is a you know a world class miner, but it doesn't take into account that I think you're going to see earnings downgrades. And if you look at um, Fortescue, which is as I said, it's a pure. Uh, it's a pure iron ore miner. And then if you go and have a look at its net income forecasts, 5.6 bill for the year that's just gone. So that's you know more or less in the bank. Projections are that it'll fall considerably next year down to 4.3 bill. And then again in FY25 down to 3.3 bill. So that is uh, roughly a 40% decline over the next two years in net profit expectations, yet Rio is expected to be largely flat. 
now, I'm not saying Rio should be down 40% over two years because Fortescue has lower quality product. Uh, it's much more sensitive to iron ore prices. Um, but when you look at FY25 numbers, then you've got you know 12.7 um, times earnings. And I wouldn't be surprised if that these get downgraded as well. The other thing with Fortescue is they're pumping a fair bit of money into uh, renewable or, or, or new forms of energy, which may or may not um, uh, bear fruit. And I guess will almost certainly not, if you look down here, and I, it's one of my key things to look at, Fortescue's pretty generating a pretty decent profit on its iron ore operations. There is almost zero chance that its reinvestment of its iron ore profits into hydrogen and green energy is going to get anything like that type of earnings. So I would say Fortescue should be on a, a, a discount compared to the other companies that are, uh, are not pursuing that path. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there in terms of the, um, in terms of the majors. Uh, but just to say that, um, so I'm just going to try and stop sharing the screen. But just in terms of the majors, you know, you look at them and you think, okay, they're well priced. Um, should we be should we be buying them? They look like value traps to me. Notwithstanding, I think you're going to get a short term bounce purely because the China story is in the news. Everyone's talking about it, uh, and and obviously that's leading to everyone wanting to sell uh, anything exposed to China. So that opens it up for a short term uh, rally. But I think longer term, you're going to see downgrades uh, for the iron ore. Uh, pricing cycle so i'd be steering clear for a while well speaking of uh optimistic projections i actually did a quick valuation of bhp in this week's money morning editorial and i used your return on equity valuation formula and i also used the market screeners uh market screener for the consensus forecasts and the initial valuation was quite absurd almost doubled the current stock price and that's purely because the forward FY24 uh, return on equity projections were so high relative to BHP's historic average. So when I used BHP's 10-year average uh, return on equity and excluded the last two financial years, yeah. I got a valuation of about $40 a share, which is pretty much where the stock is trading right now. So basically what I'm trying to say is that with those forward estimates, you really have to be careful and sort of apply your common sense. Um, analyst estimates are almost always biased to the upside. Well, that's a good point. Analysts are m nearly always more optimistic in the upgrade cycle, but in the downgrade cycle, they sometimes go a little bit too far. And one of the things I mentioned before that I always like to do is uh, look at stocks that have gone through a downgrade cycle. So you might be buying in when the uh, the earnings per share projections have fallen 30, 40, 50% from what they were maybe you know nine to 12 months ago. And, you, and when you do that, you're buying in at, a relatively low earnings expectations compared to what it was back at the highs. And talking about that valuation model, it's a really tricky thing to use with resource companies because resource companies are capital intensive. So therefore, they're generally their dividend payout ratios can be lower than normal, uh, which can overstate the valuation because they're not necessarily uh, generating high returns on on reinvesting capital. In the case of Rio, Rio and BHP in their iron ore operations in the Pilbara, they're some of the most valuable assets in the world and they are generating and have done for some time generating very uh, good returns. But at the end of the day, it depends on what your expectation is for iron ore prices. Uh, and I don't think longer term, uh, the market is looking at an 80 
dollar uh, iron ore price. And that's the thing with the, the way that valuations work. The market will, even though even though the next 12 months earnings are just one year of earnings amongst, uh, let's say, 20 years of earnings that will, that will feed into a, a valuation, but the market puts a, a huge amount of importance on that next 12 months because the the way that certainty or uncertainty is priced in in share prices that when there's certainty it gets priced in because the investors want certainty they will pay for certainty and they will uh, not pay for, for uncertainty and you're seeing that in a lot of cases where a re, uh, an annual result might come in uh, better than expected or along the lines of expectations it gives investors confidence and that share price will maybe be bid up to a price where you think, oh, that doesn't really make sense. It's quite expensive. But because it has delivered certainty in this earnings period and hasn't given investors reason to be concerned or nervous about the future, then that next year or that very short-term earnings certainty is priced in. And from a contrarian perspective, that's where it's really uh, important to think about how that works on certain stocks. Because if you are a little bit patient, if you can, if you can be prepared to to, uh, and I'm not saying take a large position straight away, but if you might want to say, look, over the next six months, I want to buy three tranches of this stock. I know it's not going to do much for the next six months, but beyond 12 months, this it doesn't look too bad. And 12 months comes into view reasonably quickly for the market. So, um, for example, there was a couple of gold stocks that reported uh, their you know pretty ordinary fourth quarter results uh, last month, and the share price reaction was really swift. Um, investors just dumped the stocks, and I'm specifically talking about Regis Resources and, and Silver Lake, um, and and you know sure that they weren't great results, but there's a lot of reason to say okay, the next twelve months is going to be pretty pretty ordinary, but beyond twelve months then there could be a decent earnings recovery, uh, albeit with uncertainty. So if you're willing to, and if you look at your valuation, you say, okay, well, um, I'm not paying, I'm not paying much here. Like I'm buying the assets and I'm buying, uh, uh, you know, the, the the cash flows for more than one year, then you, you could well quite have a bargain, but you've got to be willing to sit through a period of time where the market tells you you're wrong and, and you, you feel like a bit of a, you know, um, bit of a loser for buying into a stock that continues to go lower, or, or whatever it might be. But if you're, um, if you've done your homework and you think, okay, well this this turns around in in six to eight months' time because of X, Y, and Z, then they're the they're the positions to 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 take because a lot of the time when you're just buying into a stock that has delivered and you're paying overs for it, as soon as the disappointment or as soon as the uncertainty comes in, then that stock will you know fall considerably. So. Uh, you know, I guess in earnings season and what we're in now, it's just important to to keep in mind that the market does uh, have very big or is very sensitive to the very very short term, even though it is a longer term uh, time frame that that is really about. Well, it, longer term time frame is what justifies an overall valuation, but the market does focus very short term on it. And that presents uh, opportunities. I think um, it was Warren Buffett who said. Um, the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. Exactly. And that's why I think investing is so hard. Um, all the certainties are priced in, all the obvious implications are already accounted for, and it's the uncertainty where the uh, our performance resides, along with risk and disappointment, of course. 
and you and you got to have a, a personality where you're uh, not you don't particularly care if uh, if you're doing something popular or not. You have to almost gravitate towards what is unpopular. And um, just as a, a good example of that, a stock that I've been looking at lately is uh, Star Entertainment Group, and it has fallen sixty odd percent uh, the past however long twelve months. If you read its latest um, half yearly report, it's got a rap sheet of pages and pages about all the problems that it's got. Um, but it has, you know, pretty underlying all that. It has pretty decent assets. So I'm not saying that I'm going to be recommending it, but I just think, you know, these are the sort of uh, stocks that I like to do a bit of work on that think, okay, well, if if I if you look through a couple of years, you know, that it's clearly going through some tough times. It's got all the regulators, um, you know, hanging over it. Uh, it's got, um, you know, some consumer discretionary spend issues. There's just so many issues hanging over it that clearly there is some value there if things get better in the next 12 to 18 months. And they're the type of opportunities in this market that I think I'm more preferring to look at as a what's the real sort of contrarian play as opposed to what's done well this reporting season and, and should I get a piece of that because there's just no there's no outperformance in that i think your approach there sounds a bit like michael Byrie, who i think preferred to focus on what he called um roadkill stocks so stocks that most investors are initially repelled by but then the stocks sort of revive themselves into good investments well that's certainly a case with star entertainment yeah i'm not sure if uh we're scraping that off off the road that one but uh yeah i mean look that these are the things that's interesting and if you do you know, it takes some time to to do the work on those those type of companies because you've really got to try and assess loads of things. But it comes down to position sizing as well. If you want to put half a percent of your portfolio less into that, then if it doesn't work out, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be be a disaster. And you start off with half a percent, and if things sort of track along the way you expect, the way that you anticipated, you can increase your exposure. So there's all different ways of of managing it. You know, you're not not suggesting you sort of load up on that and and hope that you're you're going to get a um, you know a doubler in in twelve months. So you know it's just it's all just managing managing risk. That's a that's the way you look at it. Uh, now we've spoken about China and the spillover effects on iron ore stocks in particular, but I wanted to get your thoughts on any effect on the Aussie dollar. I just saw that the Aussie dollar just sank to a new low relative to the US dollar, the weakest level since I think November twenty twenty two. So the dollar, the Aussie dollar actually fell about four percent this month alone. Uh, so what do you make of that, and what does this mean for the Australian market and Aussie investors, and maybe the average Joe out there? Yeah, I don't think. I mean, it doesn't mean a great deal to be honest. I mean, you can sort of trot out the old one about overseas holidays costing more. Um, they're costing more anyway, regardless of what the dollar's doing. Uh, I think the dollar's probably the least of people's problems when it comes to that. Um, but really, you know, I look at the Aussie dollar as a barometer for global economic growth. And uh, again, we've mentioned this before, but even though we're seeing financial markets, especially in the US and to a lesser extent Australia, the stock markets are giving the impression that we're in some sort of start of a new cycle or that, um, you know, the worst is over and, and growth's going to come back. But if you look at the Aussie dollar, that's telling you that the global growth environment is, is not improving and the fact that China, which is the world's second largest economy, is slowing and slowing markedly, that's an indication that global growth is going to continue to struggle. 
uh, and then you've got the the lagged impact of monetary policy, which wouldn't be an episode uh, of what's not priced in without talking about the lagged impact of monetary policy. And I think you've got a pretty good quote um, that you, I don't know where you dug that up from. Was it maybe the RBA's minutes? You got that on hand? Because I thought that was quite interesting. Yes, about the mortgage payments. Yeah, mortgage payments and people dipping into offset accounts and that sort of uh, stuff. Yep, I've got it here. Right, let's hear so, it. <clears throat> so this was from the Reserve Bank's latest board meetings. Uh, and it said, Scheduled mortgage payments as a share of household disposable income increased to 9.4% in the June quarter around its historical peak. So that's not good news at all. But I think the most interesting part was here and it said, Voluntary principal payments into borrowers' offset and redraw accounts declined in the June quarter. Net flows into these accounts had declined to be noticeably lower than the pre-pandemic average, consistent with pressures on disposable incomes. So that's quite significant. So, well, I thought that was interesting because, um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the, the fixed interest mortgage cliff. You know, a lot of people are coming off fixed interest loans and moving into higher variable loans. And I'm seeing more articles saying what happened to the mortgage cliff. I thought we were going to have all this, you know, terrible uh, news out because of it. And um, it was certainly priced into retail companies uh, a couple of months ago. And there, and I think when the bad news didn't surface, the retail companies have been uh, bid up quite strongly. So they've had really good rallies recently. But the reason why your quote is important is because, it again, it talks about the lagged impact of this stuff. You know, people don't stop spending immediately. People start to draw down their savings. People um, make different consumption decisions, but they don't necessarily turn the tap off straight away. So this to me is about a slow moving situation where uh, higher interest rates are slowly having an impact. And that will continue to play out this year and it will continue to play out in 2024. And then by the time that the RBA sees that those interest rates are really having an impact, they'll turn, but it'll be too late. The, the, the effect of all that tightening will have really started to bite. Then they'll turn the ship around, but then that stimulus will take some time to flow through into the, into the system as well. So, yeah, it really just goes to show that people's decision-making doesn't you know, happen straight away. Um, you, I guess Australia... Most people in Australia, in order to, to uh, support their mortgage now, you've got two incomes going into it. And in prior years, those two incomes were more than enough to to support mortgages on low interest rates. But now you're seeing those two incomes being more and more put towards a mortgage, which means the offset accounts are, are declining, the savings are declining, and some of the more discretionary spend uh, is beginning to decline as well. But again, it's to me, it's early days uh, in that process. And if we look at the U.S. situation, everyone talks about, oh, the U.S. is different because they don't have variable uh, interest rates. It's all fixed. But again, the lagged impact of when your, when your mortgage comes due, when your debt comes due, you have to refinance at higher rates. So over time, every single month in the U.S., you've got a bunch of people, whether they've got home loans, whether they've got consumer loans, auto loans, uh, corporate debt, when that comes due and they have to refinance at higher levels, that's an added burden to their uh, to their um, costs. And the same with the U.S. government, their debt, their low cost debt that's coming due needs to be refinanced at higher costs, and that's why they're um, 
uh, interest payments are, are getting you know crazy high, and that will continue to hurt them as they continue to have to refinance. So, again, um, early days to me in this in this process, and perhaps this initial sell-off that we're seeing, and we've been speaking about it for the past couple of weeks, that the market doesn't really doesn't really be seeming to price in too much in the way of risks. Maybe you know we're at the start of that uh, next drawdown that starts to price in some risks and. As I said, um, as we said last week, once you see sentiment start to turn, once you see sentiment start to get negative, that'll be the indication that you know it's probably a, a good time to, to get in and start buying again. Uh, yep, yeah. and I think the the Reserve Bank itself said a few weeks ago that it takes time for households to actually respond to interest rate rises. Household spending patterns don't actually change overnight, and people's buying behavior, you know, it doesn't change on a dime. So, the effects of rising rates take time to sort of percolate. Uh, you know, people begin to slowly realize that, oh, things are getting a bit costly. Let's stop yeah. going out as much. Let's stop making as many discretionary purchases. So gradually, it's like a slowly deflating Absolutely. balloon. Good analogy. Or like a raging party where people sort of drop off one by one instead of a, a mass exodus. Were you the last to, last to leave there, Kirill? Uh, no, I'm always the first. Always the first. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, with that said, any final comments? What's the what's the market not pricing in? Well, uh, you know, it's to me, it's reasonably early days. Uh, if we are at the start of a uh, another sell-off, I think it's reasonably early days. Obviously, the China story is dominating at the moment. Uh, shorter term, I think a lot of that's priced in. Just seeing way too many headlines on how um, bad and how risky China is. So, uh, by the time you reading this, you're probably going to, or sorry, listening to this, you're probably going to be seeing green on iron ore miners, uh, but be cautious of those longer term um, revisions to iron ore price forecasts and the effect that will have on on future profits. So uh, I'm not getting excited yet. Time to get excited when everyone's bearish and we've still got pretty high sentiment indicators. So we'll, um, we'll check back in on that next week, mate. Yep. I think the CCN, the, the CNN. CNN fear and green index, it's still at greed. So, so the party's still going on still plenty of people there exactly all right well with that said i'll catch you next week thanks for joining what's not priced in your weekly source of unique ideas in the australian stock market now if you've enjoyed this episode please show your support by liking and subscribing and turn those post notifications so you don't miss a thing and uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics new trends and new stocks thanks for your support hope to see you next week